Hello everyone, welcome to our Saturday broadcast. It's nice to see people ready coming at the beginning of the stream, and we'll slowly see people trickle in as it goes on. So as usual, we'll start with the meditation, and we're just doing silent meditation for 15 minutes, or you can do walking or sitting, and, and this is a time if you have questions you can post them in the chat, our team will start uh, categorizing them and preparing them for the second half of the second part of the broadcast, which is the Q&A session. Okay, so we start with meditation.
Okay, thank you. Meditation ends there. And we'll move into the Q&A session. So from now on, anything that's not a question would be removed from chat. Please only post questions. And we'll begin answering now. Thank you, Bente. We have questions. How can meditation help people with severe drug addiction to drugs such as cocaine and heroin? It's not going to be easy. I think I think for a person who has a severe drug addiction, they should enter into a rehab uh, facility. Me meditation isn't really for people who have severe problems. It's not about taking really bad people to be normal people. It's much more for taking good people to be enlightened people now that being said it's not it's not quite fair because it's not quite true it, it it's it does help it's just hard and it's a struggle and a lot of the same benefits can be had from i think rehab so I guess I would recommend getting your life on track first as a part of your practice. Do some uh, do some basic meditation, but but focus mostly on rehab. So that doesn't quite answer your question. I guess how can it help? I, I, I just want to preface it then by saying that and say that you shouldn't rely on meditation to fix your problem. It's it's probably not going to be that successful because meditation is really hard. It's hard for people who don't have severe drug addictions. Um, so I would, I, I guess, absolutely suggest it and recommend it for someone who has a drug addiction. But make sure you're doing it in conjunction with some uh, more mainstream cold turkey rehab uh, in, in a rehab facility. So how can it help? I mean, at, at the heart, meditation is all about addiction. Drug addictions are, are categorically no different from any other addiction, and, and all of the Buddha's teaching is based around this addiction, uh, the addiction cycle, and the nature of addiction. The The point is, really, that addiction is always going to require some mental component. Many substances like cocaine and heroin have a physically physical addiction component, but it's not actually an addiction. Addiction is just the mind's interpretation of what you're going through. The physical doesn't have addiction, and it also doesn't go through withdrawal. Physical only undergoes changes, and those changes are are uh, um, neutral. The physical can't undergo a bad change; it just undergoes a change, right? If the physical is made up of the four elements, what's to say that this makeup of the four elements or this this um, setup of the four elements is, is better than that. 
meaning if your body is in in one condition what makes that better than in it being in another condition only how the mind interprets it so being able to see the distinction between that physical side of addiction and the mental desire which is the partiality for certain physical states we have partiality for the pleasure states and that's not to not to trivialize the physical aspect it's just to put it in its place and to say that ultimately, for a person whose mind is strong and has wholesome qualities of mind, addiction isn't that hard to overcome. But a person who has fallen into intense addiction likely doesn't have that, well, many times won't have that um, wholesome mental base to rely on. And uh, so that, that that's why it, it's not easy easy it's quite simple because the simple side is just being able to separate the physical and the mental being able to be mindful of the mental and if you have the mindful quality a mindful state of mind then there's no physical state that can ever cause problems for you it's just getting to that mindful state so in brief how can meditation help it helps you cultivate this wholesome objective non-partial state of mind where neither the pleasant states of indulging in the addiction nor the unpleasant states of withdrawal from addiction are seen as a problem there's no reaction to them that's the key is when you're able to experience those experiences without positive or negative reactions but again, I wouldn't rely on it. I would say with severe addiction, we can help. But I, I think in that case, it's better to... Uh, I mean, there are facilities that will help with a lot of the preliminary stuff. And, and absolutely, such people going through rehab, I think hopefully many rehab centers in, engage in meditation. And hopefully some of that meditation is mindfulness as well. And so this is how it can help. Does this practice lead to happiness? Is freedom from suffering the same thing as happiness? Yes and yes. I mean, in, in put very simply, the answers are yes and yes. Um, the, the key distinction is that happiness isn't limited to a pleasant feeling. Um, because the problem with a pleasant feeling is that it's unpredictable and there's no capacity to attain a permanent pleasant feeling. Feelings are never going to be permanent and they're always going to be related to causes and and creating effects as well. If If you seek out happy feelings your mind is is going to get caught up in the addiction cycle the problem with happy feelings is that there's liking of them so finding a happiness that is free from liking is the key and a person who is happy can have pleasant feelings but if the pleasant feeling is your happiness you're never you're not going to escape the liking of it it's possible to have a state of happiness without liking but it can't be dependent on the feeling it has to be because of purity and and actually literally because of the lack of wanting uh, 
happiness is related to wanting the happiness. And as long as you don't have it, you're wanting. But once you have it, it's that freedom from wanting that is the true happiness. So it really is um, easier to understand as peace. And so we often focus more on the idea of peace because peace, permanent peace is actually attainable. But permanent pleasant feelings are not attainable. So true happiness cannot be a pleasant feeling. When I get sudden news of surprise or shock, I get happy or dull immediately. Why cannot my mind be still even in that moment? How to develop such an ability of a reactionless mind? It takes practice. Don't, don't be fixated on the fact that you weren't mindful in terms of your reaction to one thing. Note the awareness of the reaction, right? Be mindful of the reaction. So when you feel happy, note the happiness. When you feel dull, note the dullness. It, it's not something that's unattainable. It's not like that you're locked out from, um, from reacting in a different way. It's just going to take practice. Uh, part of it is breaking away from the idea that I get this, and when I get sudden news, try and look at it as a certain thing arises, and then there's a result to it, and try to take that as an object of observation, because as you become more familiar with how it's working, you will find that your mind is sharper, your mind is quicker, and, and there's much better capacity to engage in, in in mindful ways, as opposed to reactionary ways just takes practice i mean if you haven't done our at-home course i'd recommend that if you're really into learning to be mindful you can do our intensive course you can find the links at the, the bottom of the page is our new link that i mean it's an old link but it's our, the link we're now sharing so go there it should have everything you need read the booklet there's courses as well What is a path to tackling papancha? Well, papancha relates to uh, the diversification of the mind. I think there are other meanings of the word, but my idea is that it, it my understanding of it is that it relates to our um, diversification and judgment of experiences. So, I mean, mind, the simple answer is that mindfulness is the path that changes that, because mindfulness doesn't diversify and doesn't react to experiences. It just experiences them objectively. Buddha was clear about this. He said, let seeing just be seeing, let hearing just be hearing. I mean, basically, it's it's the act of not diversifying the Find a practice where you're not finding meaning in things, judging things, reacting to things, extrapolating on experiences. Try and just see experiences as, as they are. You've said that physical exercise is not to be pursued, but what about stretching of limbs? You are able to sit cross-legged as Buddha prescribed. I can't yet. Well, I couldn't either, but I didn't do physical exercises. My experience is that physical exercises are not, or stretches are not 
um, the solution to being able to sit, for example, sit cross-legged. Uh, and if you want to, the, the real solution is is relaxing the body, and that comes through actual practice. It's the practice itself that makes it easier generally, or for me it was the case anyway, and from what I've experienced with others, that allows you to sit cross-legged, for example, because your body just becomes more relaxed. But it takes time as well. Most uh, Asian people are, are far better able to sit on the floor. They've just been doing it for so long. Their bodies fit into it. So, I mean, another part is just practice and patience. Sit with pillows under your knees to start with. Stretching doesn't help in my experience because of it, the, the biggest problem is the tension and the stress that comes from the mind. Uh, just be patient with it. And also the aversion to the pain. You have to be pa patient with the pain of trying to sit cross-legged. And you'll find real real rewards if you do that. What is the right way to meditate to increase short-term memory, to increase focus and concentration? Well, those are two different questions. I mean, we're not interested in increasing short-term memory per se, though it may be a result of mindfulness. Mindfulness can potentially help with that, though I do have experience with people not with not very good memory who have pretty good mindfulness. So I don't know that it's across the board. Uh, but increasing focus and concentration, most meditations will increase focus and concentration. Again, that's not exactly the goal of our practice so i'm not really going interested in you know it's not something i'm really going to give you an in-depth answer about i guess basically i'll say that most meditations will allow for that and i guess what i will say is i would suggest you set your sights higher because that's not the uh, ultimate goal of meditation just looking for practical rewards for your daily life is I would say look beyond that. If you're concerned about, if you want those things, then you're you're setting your sights too low. You're you're seeking something that is not going to absolutely bring peace and happiness and freedom from suffering. You're not going to be content even if you get those things. It's just a temporary solution to your problems. When I do walking meditation, when stepping right, I don't note experience arising and ceasing. I experience more like the experience goes on. What can I do? Should I be more concentrated? Well, you may not be separating the steps. You know, each step should be in, in distinct from each other. So you should be aware of the beginning of the movement and the end of the movement. Not, not one fluid motion of feet moving. You should, as soon as the foot starts to move, start saying step, and bing, and then when the foot is down, say right, and then step, bing, left. The, the, the inability to really see the, the distinction is ultimately something that's going to have to come through practice. Uh, and I wouldn't worry too much about that. Most important is that you're present, 
you're hanging around. The mind is 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 hanging out here. It's not running off into abstract thought. So just trying be, be content with your mind being aware of, of the experience, and slowly, slowly, you'll start to be able to better distinguish beginning and end of experiences. It takes practice as well. Two nights ago, my mother passed away in her sleep. Do you have any advice on how to deal with the emotions? I've only slept three hours since I found her. I'm struggling with mindfulness. Well, struggling with mindfulness is not a problem. Don't be discouraged by that. Mindfulness is, is going to be a struggle for everyone. But when you, you ha when you have serious emotions, it's an even greater struggle. Now, the practice is ultimately going to be the same, but you're in a position where you've 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 not prepared yourself for this situation, which is the ordinary state. We all should take a lesson from such experiences. When we hear about other people who have uh, lost their mothers, we should all ask ourselves, if that happened to me, how would I feel? And prepare ourselves. Mindfulness is, is something that, if practiced and cultivated, does allow you to deal with this. So it's a bit of a problem to try and uh, use it to solve your immediate issues. Like, I didn't practice meditation before, and now when my mother passed away, I'm practicing. I'm not sure if that's your case, actually. You haven't exactly specified. So it may be that it's just harder now, but you, you've practiced before. But you should find that if you have practiced mindfulness in the past, it's helpful, and it will still be a struggle. So that's uh, not surprising. But... Again, don't be discouraged by the struggle and do do your best with what you can. It's hard when you experience extreme emotions and, and ones that are very much caught up in narratives because you have a long, long story with your mother, most likely. And it's some, I mean, it, it probably even goes beyond this life why they're this person, why you were born as their child. Uh, so don't trivialize it, and don't be discouraged by the fact that it's hard. You have to expect it to be a challenge, because, well, these are challenging emotions. There's nothing intrinsically special about them, or, or really should be surprising about them. This is the nature of, unfortunately, addiction. You know, we're addicted to pleasant experiences, and it's complicated experiences, but mostly it's the pleasure and the, the, desi the desire and the attachment to people. And it's still just attachment. There's nothing special about it. Don't, don't. I mean, a big part of the narrative that we tell ourselves is it being our mother that we lost. And these are just narratives. They're just ideas. The reality is there's thoughts, memories, and then there's the reaction to those, yeah, or the reaction to the thoughts that you're never going to experience those again, the inability to... Uh, talk to your mother, the inability to see, and so on. I mean, it's 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 all just getting what you want, not getting what you don't want, not getting what you want. It's just the classic addiction cycle, and this is the cycle of suffering that Buddhism talks about. So it's not to trivialize your loss, but it it really isn't the loss that we make it out to be. People move on. It's the nature of life. We come into people's lives unexpected and 
they leave our lives unexpected. It's just the way things work, come and go. It's not like you're, you're probably bereft of people. There's new people around. And this is just the nature of life. And if we could, and when we learn to be more mindful, uh, we're better able to accept this change. We're better able to adapt and move on. You know. So none of that is to say that you're wrong to feel sad. Uh, I mean, technically, we're always wrong to feel sad, but it's not unsurprising. And it's not, you shouldn't feel bad or you shouldn't try to pretend you're not sad or try to get rid of the sadness. No, you should be mindful of the sadness. Mostly in meditation, we don't take the, we try not to take the view that anything is wrong. Uh, we just try to observe it and learn about what makes things right and what makes things wrong and let the rightness and wrongness show themselves. So again, don't be discouraged by the way things are. Just try and be mindful of the way things are. If you're distracted and, and unmindful, unfocused or whatever, if you're, of course, sad, you would just be mindful of all those things, whatever it is that you do experience. And, and don't expect perfection. Just use mindfulness as a tool to help you sort of ground yourself and re reorient yourself so that your life isn't pivoting around this person or pivoting around their death. It should pivot around the present moment. And you should try and just catch what comes in. It's going to be a lot of memories of your relationship with the person who passed away. Just use those memories as objects of mindfulness. Don't let them be the pivot. Let the pivot, make the pivot, keep the pivot as the, as the present moment. That's your only center. Could you please say something about impatience during meditation? Do I note impatience? Should I also note perseverance? Yes, you should note impatience. I don't have much to say about impatience. Um, it comes usually from disliking. It can also come from liking, so you might want to note those. You might be be neglecting to note when you like something. Like in the sense you want, you, you think of something you could be doing and you want to do it, and that makes you impatient for this thing that you really don't want to be doing, for example. And then the disliking of, of the meditation, that is what makes impatience. Try and figure out what is actually triggering the what you call impatience. Because honestly, impatience isn't really a reality. There's a liking or a disliking, and there's um, potentially a, a restlessness that we call impatience. Um, as far as noting perseverance, the only time absolutely that you would know, the absolutely on, the absolute only time you would note perseverance is if you experienced it. This is um, a very, 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 very important thing for a new meditator to understand, that as they learn about this practice of using a mantra, that your mantra is always, 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 absolutely needs to be a reminder of something that is happening. It could never, ever, ever, should never, ever, ever be a mantra for the purpose of evoking the thing that you're reciting. That is a big cause, for, a cause for a big problem. It involves self. It involves attachment, uh, and it has the potential to drive you crazy, to to lead you into real problems. I've seen that happen actually with people who were not really well taken care of as students, it seems, and 
and themselves didn't really get the get the meditation grasp it correctly so be clear that you'd only note something if you experienced it so if you experienced a state that was perseverance probably wouldn't ever use that word because i can't imagine a state that would be best noted as perseverance but if you experience such a state you could note it as perseverance but perseverance is more like an idea hey i persevered right um but if you by perseverance you perhaps mean patience then you could note patience if you had it but you would never ever note it because you wanted to have it like patience patience in the sense that oh if i say this somehow i'll become more patient you might a little bit but you'll really lose out in the long run and it's very dangerous to try and evoke states by using mantras because it's not under your control and it's it's magic thinking and you're just going to get crazy when it doesn't work and when you you can't control the situation Should you not sit in a full lotus when meditating? There's nothing technically wrong with sitting in full lotus meditation, but there is no sense that you should sit in in full lotus position when you're doing vipassana meditation. So don't think that you should by any means for any reason. If you can comfortably sit in the lotus position for an hour, say, or even a half an hour, then go ahead by all means. If you're thinking of working up to it, I would say stop wasting your time sit in the ordinary cross-legged position, one leg in front of the other with the heel touching the shin, and uh, focus on your mind. Don't worry about the physical too much. Well, use the physical as an object, that's all. I quite often jump from noting one thing onto another. The mind cannot stay noting one thing. Any advice? Oh, you would note distracted or restless. Distracted is the big one there. Yeah, I mean, if you notice you're, you're noting many different things, that's not the best way. It's best to try to note something until it disappears and then go back to the rising and falling. You make a sort of a conscious decision, not not exactly effort. You don't ignore experiences but you make the decision to go back and it's, it's basically just go back to the original object the stomach or the foot but uh, yeah if you no, find yourself jumping from one object to another just no distracted distracted the mind does not focus When during meditation, there's a conviction that I can't do it, I'd better do something else, or I can't do it today. Is this torpor? Should I also note believing, as these thoughts are very real? Well, if they're thoughts, just say thinking, thinking. I mean, a key part of that is going to be separating the thoughts from the the reality of the experience what you think about something is not necessarily the way it is so i can't do it is really just a thought it doesn't actually mean that you can't do it uh, i'd better do something else isn't a sign that you should do something else it's a sign that you're thinking that you should do something else and you should see that as just a thought uh, but you say conviction so um well i guess i would note the conviction as well 
because it also doesn't necessarily reflect reflect reality. You can have conviction about you can have wrong convictions. And you can know believing as well. Try and be mindful. I mean, there may be reasons why you shouldn't uh, practice meditation at a specific time. That's fine. But I would say that's pretty rare. But but it doesn't mean that you have to do formal meditation. The real key to this practice isn't the fact that you're doing an hour of walking and sitting. The key is that you're being mindful. And you can do that, should do that, before you even start meditating. It's a good way to prepare yourself for the actual formal meditation. Can a guarded mind repress emotions? I can catch myself seeing images in the mind, and it would stop the abstraction in relation to it. Is there any sense in playing out the abstractions? Well, to some extent it represses emotions, but repress is not probably the best word. You're just cutting in. You're cutting in line, basically. You're cutting them off before they even arise. There's no opportunity for emotions to arise. Um, so I guess, basically, I would say, no, there is no sense in planning out the abstractions. Absolutely not. That's a big part of what meditation is designed to cut in on. It doesn't repress them. It just doesn't give them an opportunity to arise. They have to arise based on partiality. Mindfulness is impartial. So they'll just they just can't arise. Sloth and torpor are not leaving my mind. For the last ten months, this hindrance has been obstructing me to cultivate meditation. Please advise on how to deal with it. Well, there's no way to just get rid of it. I wouldn't be too concerned with it. Just note it when it arises. It isn't there all the time. That's not possible. So just note it when it arises and when it ceases and go back to the rising and falling. If it comes back, note it again. Don't expect it to go away. There's lots of reasons why it might be there. Many of them are just physical. Just try and be as, be mindful of it. Take it as an object of meditation whenever you can. I don't know if you've done our at-home course or the intensive course. Intensive course is a really good way to overcome sloth and torpor. For an intensive course, I could manage to sleep for six hours and eat one or two times, but I have the idea that I would not stand at all the lust that is usually very intense and unbearable in me. Any tips? Well, you could try. I think it's maybe easier than you think. When you're in a meditation center, it's easier to focus your intention, focus your attention. Uh, I guess I would work on your lust, take it as an object of, object of mindfulness. I don't know if you've done our at-home course, but that might help. How does one overcome depression? and or the feeling of being trapped when meditating? Well, we don't focus on the overcoming. I mean, you overcome it through mindfulness, which involves focusing on it or facing it. 
So when you add, a lot of people ask about overcoming, and what they really mean is getting rid of. And, and they, they both kind of mean the same thing, and they both are kind of the goal, but they can't be your goal. Your focus cannot be overcoming them. Your focus has to be facing them. Overcoming is kind of like, how can I jump over this so I don't have to face it? You have to go through it. And, and not just go through it, go through it. You have to face it with mindfulness. Uh, both of those things, depression, feeling trapped. Don't worry about them going away. Them going away is not the point. You being mindful and not reacting to them and seeing them as they are is the point. Does the physical world exist independent of experience? I guess I want to say who cares. Um, I don't think it's a proper question for this forum. Um, I don't think I'm going to answer that, uh, except to say who. I, I, sorry, it's very tongue-in-cheek and kind of unpleasant to say who cares, but it kind of is apl applicable. Like, but my, the meaning is there's not a great reason to ask such a question. And I guess by saying who cares, the point also is that would it would it make a difference if there was? Right? If a tree falls in the forest and no one's around to hear it, who cares? But a tree is interesting because it, it, it still has the potential to influence uh, experience. But that's only the reason the only reason why it's interesting. Nothing is interesting except as it relates to experience. Um, and I guess I could also say that that, that kind of, of questioning is not going to get you anywhere because your mind is not focused on actual experience when you're wondering those kind of things. And experience, what I will say is whether or not anything exists outside of experience, experience is the only thing that's going to help you. It's the only thing that's going to work to allow you to see clearly and free yourself from suffering. So don't focus on anything outside of experience. It won't help you. Does microdosing psychedelics, taking a subperceptual dose, interfere with the five precepts? I don't know what that means. I've never heard of that. Subperceptual. So what effect does it have if it's not perception perceptive? Or do you just mean you don't hallucinate? <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, psychedelics are potentially not, um, I don't know if you could say they interfere with the five precepts at all. Um, that's not fair. Let me think about that. See, they're a bit of a strange, um, case and they don't exactly intoxicate you. Not in the way alcohol does, anyway. Alcohol is an impaired impairment. But I'm not. I'm not praising them. I don't want you to think that I'm in any way because I think they're useless. Let's let's jump to the end and say psychedelics are useless. Don't take them. There's no point. They're they're a mistake. Now, with the qualifier that apparently they're good for people with who have depression, there are clinical trials. So, outside of meditation practice, there may be a practical, worldly case where they might be useful. And I would say probably better, in my, from my experience of them, better than the drugs that we take. 
But in terms of meditation practice, no, do not mix meditation or Buddhism with psychedelics. It's it's wrong. That's bad. Do not do that. That's foolishness. But psychedelics are interesting because I think you could probably drive a car. I've never tried it, but you could drive a car on psychedelics. You just probably hit the the invisible things that you were hallucinating about, right? You 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 would crash, but you wouldn't exactly be impaired. Sometimes it, there's heightened perceptions. You just you're perceiving things that often aren't there, and your perceptions are warped. It's so you could call it an intoxication. It's probably fair to still call it an intoxication. It's just not quite like alcohol. Um, so when you're talking about very, very small doses, I don't know. I don't. I mean, is caffeine breaking the five precepts? I would say most Buddhists would say no, it's not. But caffeine is a drug, and caffeine affects your perception, uh, affects your experience. It's an upper. Caffeine is an upper. Uh, green tea. Any, well, yeah, sorry, caffeine, yeah. Um, so then, what's the difference? And I would I would say that marijuana, alcohol, uh, of course, like heroin, crack, cocaine, these ones are, yeah, and psychedelics. There's no avoiding it. Psychedelics are are, are a, just a different sort of intoxication. There's no way you could be truly mindful on psychedelics, even though you might think you were being mindful. Uh, so when it's very, very small doses, perhaps you wouldn't be breaking the five precepts. I don't even know what that means. I'm not sure what that sort of practice looks like or what that sort of regimen looks like where someone takes minor, small doses of psychedelics. I would say from a Buddhist perspective, it's barking up the wrong tree and you can do better with mindfulness, generally speaking. But yes, so specifically about the five precepts, you might get away with that. I wouldn't be so quick to judge that someone taking minor amounts of... Because I once took psychedelics and just laughed for a long time. It was a lot, but I'm saying I didn't hallucinate. I just laughed and laughed and laughed and, until it hurt, which is silly and, and really stupid. But um, minor, minor, minor doses might just be like coffee. I don't know. Why is it said that Nibbana has no cause? Isn't it seeing clearly things clearly the cause of Nibbana? Um, well, it depends what you exactly mean by cause, because in Buddhism, we usually refer to cause as being that which triggers the arising, but Nibbāna is unarisen. So what you're referring to is the cause of the experience of Nibbāna. So no, um, seeing things clearly doesn't cause Nibbāna to arise. It causes the mind to experience Nibbāna. It's actually quite technical, but the point is that there's no arising in Nibbana, so it can't actually have a cause. It's just your experience of that. But 
practically speaking, it's not wrong. It's not bad to say your practice led to Nibbana. Can you I want to go back. Sorry, I want to just give me a second. Go back to the, the the psychedelics because I think I changed my mind. It's not really fair of me to say because it's not orthodox to say that it would be okay to take small amounts of psychedelics. I think you would have to still say that it's not fair because you can't put an arbitrary line on what's too little. If it's an intoxicant, it's an intoxicant, and it should be abstained from. So small amounts of intoxicants are still breaking the five precepts. And if you're going to take small doses of psychedelics, which I would say have to be classified, even though they're different, have to be classified as a sort of intoxicant. Therefore, you sh you sh in order to keep the five precepts, you should not take them, period. The same goes with marijuana. The same goes with everything. I would argue you should avoid coffee, but coffee isn't the sort of thing that you could take a lot of and get intoxicated on. Which also isn't really fair to say, because I know some, I know two meditators who went crazy on coffee, just had so much trying to stay awake, and they ended up really getting in big mental trouble. So, coffee is on the edge, I would say. I'm not convinced that you should drink caffeine as a Buddhist. But I, I, I'm not going to say taking coffee is breaking the five precepts. That's perhaps too radical. Okay, go ahead. I have to leave soon. Uh, I have a meditator here, so we might have to end a few minutes early. Go ahead. Sorry, Bhante. I want to take a moment to make sure we answer the tier one questions. I'll just present this one as it is. It'll take too longer to correct. I feel quite stubbornly attached to beauty and pleasures as a good thing. Is this the famous clinging upadana? When I feel stubborn like a mule, should I note clinging? You should know what you feel. Don't try and interpret it. If you feel stubborn, you can say stubborn, but try and be more precise about what you actually experience. You don't have to interpret it as clinging. Um, stubbornly attached is is a little more clear. You have to, rather than use words like stubborn, like you're you're just interpreting it. But what do you actually experience as an attachment? Which it's not. It's still not quite exact because what's exact is there's probably a liking in certain moments and there's a wanting in other moments. And that's probably what you should be noting, is liking and wanting. Since the mantra is a thought, is it better to make sure the mind is not too full of other thoughts in order to be mindful? No, the, the thoughts are always coming. There's no, you don't have to worry about having too many thoughts. If you have other thoughts, just not thinking, thinking, or distracted. 
The mind doesn't work that way. The mind isn't full of thoughts. There's thoughts arising and ceasing constantly, and mindfulness isn't going to be pushed out by them. You just have to, when you notice that you're thinking, just say thinking, thinking. There's, to, to put a fine point on it, you can't make sure that the mind is not too full of other thoughts. There's no. What would it mean if you could somehow do that? That would mean that you were in control, which you're not. And mindfulness will help you see that. Uh, that, that being said, you should, practically speaking, it is helpful to organize your life in such a way that you're not thinking too much. Like, don't um, get too busy with worldly things or fill your mind with all sorts of garbage and reading can get in the way if you read a lot, that sort of thing. I mean, if you have to read or, or you have to work or you have to engage in the world, that's okay. It's not a big problem. But practically speaking, it is helpful to simplify your life and to keep yourself from getting lost in thought too much. Just, just for, uh, practically, like, like, based on your activities, engage in activities that don't encourage excessive thought. Thank you, Bhante. We've crossed the hour. That's okay. all the questions we're prepared to ask today. Yes. Sorry, I'm probably there's probably some in the back, but if your question didn't get answered, you can ask it again next time, uh, or you can come on our Discord server and ask there. Someone will be able to help you. But thank you all for your questions. It's great to see people coming out as usual. Thank you, Chris and Rahid, for the help. Uh, everyone, may you have all find peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering. Sadhu. Sadhu.